Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Candice, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, Managing Sensory Disruptions During Cancer Treatments. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in this topic, and I must say this is the first time we're offering this topic really based on your requests in your evaluations that we do a program on managing sensory disruptions during cancer treatments, that we have over 553 participants, so 553 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, Costa Rica, France, Italy, India, and the United Kingdom, so really an international call a bit. Um, now, today's program is um, supported by a grant from Genentech and a contribution from Lilly, and I really want to thank them for their support of this innovative program and also for their corporate uh, sponsorship, their partnership in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, Accreditation Surveyor, American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer. Dr. Fleischman is going to address an overview of sensory disruptions related to cancer treatments, including causes and risk factors. And then he's going to address vision, hearing, taste, swallowing, smell, touch, and balance disruptions as examples of these disruptions. He will provide some tips to cope with balance, peripheral neuropathy, and hearing disruptions. And he will also identify key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Fleischman. Yes. Hi, Dr. Messner. Thank you very much for proposing this topic. This is a really interesting topic when we think about how cancer and cancer treatment affects people's quality of life. Um, I would never have thought of putting all this together, so I think this is really great. Uh, just a technical point of view, my neurology training tells me that we uh, may have missed the mark a little bit in the title because our sensory issues um, really involve vision, hearing, taste, smell, and touch, the five sort of classical senses. But balance and swallowing are, um, are uh, sometimes impacted by both um, the troubles with the nerves that stimulate those activities as well as muscles some of them that we can voluntarily um, cause to contract and some that are automatic, um, and it gets a little more complicated than just the sensory part themselves. But I'll, I'll try not to focus on the um, whether it's motor or sensory, but rather what the issue is for patients and families and for the treatment team. So um, if we look at um, what causes changes in all of these, uh, sensi the, these sensory issues and processes, what we find is that it really boils down to a number of things. First, um, the cancer itself, that uh, cancer, if, if there's a tumor in the area, can cause trouble with any of these senses by pressing on the nerve that carries the message from the brain or carries the message from the senses of smell or touch or hearing or um, taste um, or touch 
through into the brain that then gets processed and sends a message back for the body to do something. Uh, so if, let's say, someone has a, um, an acoustic neuroma, let's say, which is a, a tumor in the, in the hearing, in, in the hearing nerve, um, hearing will be affected because of pressure on that nerve, and that, that can happen in various parts of the body. Uh, these sort of sensory problems can also happen if the cancer um, has deposited there or what we normally call metastases or metastatic spot. Um, and, um, again, pressure on the nerve uh, involved with these functions really can impact um, our quality of life. The other thing that we find is that cancer can affect other parts of the body apart from where it's, it itself is growing through proteins that the cancer releases as it's growing. Uh, we always go back to Latin and Greek names, I guess, when we want to make things seem more remote, and that's a sort of classical thing in medicine, but we these days try to make it as simple as possible. So cytokines um, is back uh, a traditional term meaning cell proteins, and those proteins uh, can s circulate through the body and affect some functions far off from where the cancer grows. So the cancer itself can be involved in this. But most of us, sort of almost in a um, reflex kind of way, often turn to what the treatments cause because that seems uppermost in our minds. So for chemotherapy, uh, we often talk about the effect of chemotherapy on hair and nails and the stomach lining because those are rapidly dividing cells. But we also know that many types of chemotherapy affect the nerves, often the nerves in what we call the periphery of the body. So if it's outside of the brain in the spinal cord and it goes to the hands and the feet and the tip of the breast or any sort of ending, that's, those are peripheral nerves. And we know that certain chemotherapies do affect the peripheral nerves as well. And um, hence the term peripheral neuropathy, neuropathy meaning a problem with the nerves. So this can affect um, both all, all, many of the functions, um, hearing especially, um, taste, uh, smell, as well as touch. Uh, and that can also affect the way we actually sense that if we're standing straight up, if we hit the ground when we walk, if we hit the keyboard when we're typing, these are all um, problems in peripheral neuropathy, both sensory and motor. Um, there are other, um, sometimes dryness is a factor that affects uh, these functions, and particularly in vision uh, and uh, taste and smell. We rely on um, our eyes and our nose uh, and uh, our mouth to be moist in order to absorb some of the sensory information coming in from the outside, and that can be affected by the cancer as well as a variety of treatments. Number of the chemotherapies dry us out, pain medicine dry us out, um, number of the anti-nausea medicines dry us out, many reasons for that to happen. Um, and other medicines that are used in cancer treatment include uh, some antibiotics, which can certainly affect hearing um, as one of the main sensory components of the side effects that we need to pay attention to. Um, if we look at radiation, radiation also can affect some of these nerves depending upon where the radiation beam is, um, is focused, and that can include uh, the mouth, the ears. So we rarely or we always try to um, keep 
spare the optic nerve or the main nerve that gets the sensory information from the eyes into the brain. Sometimes that's not possible, but most of the time that is um, the, the radiation is directed away from that to preserve as much of a vision as possible. And certainly we know that radiation can affect taste if it involves the mouth. We also know that um, radi the radiation in, to the mouth area or in the general area of the face can cause lots of mucus or not, not enough mucus, and that can also affect how our senses work. So although the cancer itself um, can be a source of trouble in these areas, the treatments that we provide also are sources of um, difficulty, and we need to sort of work our way around them. Um, and again, focusing on quality of life makes this a really, really important topic. Since there will be some more detailed um, discussions of some of these topics, I want to sort of focus on the ones that uh, will not be covered in the rest of the call. Um, peripheral neuropathy, particularly when um, it causes us to stumble or uh, not be able to stand or walk properly, really requires um, lots of evaluation, and can, we can really offer some concrete help. Um, peripheral neuropathy is often worse in people who have diabetes before they have cancer or people who are prone to diabetes or have diabetes and didn't know it and only find out after they have cancer. Um, we rely first on good evaluation, including testing of the nerves with a little bit of electrical stimulation. Often people don't like this test, um, but it's necessary to really confirm that a peripheral neuropathy is a presence. Sometimes we skip it depending upon the situation. But the, uh, the main sort of workaround is to make sure that the, the, if it's legs or hands, that the muscles are as strong as possible because the muscles then can support the arm or mostly the feet and the legs if you stumble to avoid falling. And we can learn through physical therapy to compensate for that. Another thing that's really important are proper shoes. And I know that seems kind of simplistic, but proper shoes and good exercises are really, really helpful. A variety of medications can help. Uh, peripheral neuropathy often comes in different types. There's the, the sort of the numb type, the pins and needles type, the hot and cold type. The medications are most effective for the pins and needles and the hot and cold type rather than the numb type. But the smartest thing is that this is evaluated by your primary care team, the primary care treatment team, and then they are referring you to a neurologist who can do a more specialized um, evaluation and then involve a physiatrist or a physical therapist and rehabilitation doctor very familiar with cancer-related problems, and then often a podiatrist to suggest either a different kind of a shoe or an orthotic, a shoe insert, to make sure that uh, you're as safe as possible and you retain as much of your mobility as possible. Uh, sometimes uh, um, the chemotherapy dose needs to be altered. Uh, we try not to do that, um, but sometimes that needs to be, and that's sort of uh, based on an individual situation. Also, control of diabetes is really important because if the diabetes is under control, the uh, contribution of the diabetes to the peripheral neuropathy is um, minimized. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit um, in more detail is hearing. Um, we, as we get older, um, our hearing changes, as does just about everything else. 
And we know that hearing changes come um, sort of in two ways. When we hear a noise, the sound is conducted by the bone or by nerves into the brain so we can process it. And some of the uh, hearing-related changes associated with cancer are due to the little bone, the effect of the little bones inside the ear, but most of it is related to the nerve that carries that message in and carries information back. Um, similar to the kinds of things that happen as we all get older, um, these can be affected by our some of our pre-existing state, how much hearing loss we've had, um, before cancer, have we worked in places with lots of loud noise or have we overused our devices with uh, volumes way too loud that can affect our hearing. Um, if, uh, hearing can be affected by chemotherapies, certain types of chemotherapies, certain types of antibiotics that are used in cancer treatment, um, a variety of medicines, and the, this is best evaluated by your primary oncology team who will then refer you to an ear, nose, and throat doctor who's very familiar with cancer-related issues, and then sometimes uh, an audiologist who can actually do a really good hearing test, um, and then for some types of hearing loss, be fitted for hearing aids. That seems um, maybe kind of expensive, and some types are, but there are some less expensive types that can provide some relief. Um, an alternative for some people, depending upon the results of that evaluation, may simply be a, an amplification um, system that you can put on your TV in your house. You can use it for certain things like li watching television, listening to the radio, uh, that make hearing a lot uh, more comfortable for you. It's not the same as a, um, a fitted hearing aid if, if that's the audiologist and the ear, nose, and throat doctor think that will help. But again, it's a less expensive fix and can really improve quality of life. Um, as far as uh, balance goes, I, I, didn't, I neglected to say that that's really a part of the peripheral neuropathy evaluation um, because balance is essential to making sure that uh, we are upright when we need to get up from a lying or a sitting position and we don't fall. So this is a very short introduction to a rather complicated area, but I guess the main message is that these um, types of incursions on quality of life are often amenable to help. Start with your uh, primary cancer treatment team and when necessary or advocate to be um, referred to um, specialists in the, all of these areas who have experience with cancer in your area who may be able to help. I'll stop there. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really excellent and just a wonderful overview for today's call and a lot of excellent information. I know the questions for you during the Q&A. Our next speaker is Dr. Stella Kim. Dr. Kim is the Joanne Green, Junior Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology, Res Department of Ophthalmology and, Physical, and, Visual, and Visual Science, University of Texas Health Medical School, Physic Eye Clinic. And Dr. Kim is going to address overview of vision changes, managing dry eyes, floaters, cataracts, decreased vision or peripheral vision, and blurred vision, practical tips to cope with vision changes and disruptions, and guidelines for follow-up care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Kim. Thank you very much for having me on the program. I'd like to dovetail Dr. Fleischman's presentation and go over uh, patients' 
cancer patients' visual problems that can occur due to uh, patients' cancer itself, as Dr. Fleischman mentioned, um, cancer treatment, uh, as well as medications uh, that support patients to go through the treatment. So it, it's not too common to have a cancer-related eye eye disease, eye blurry vision, unless one has either cancer of the brain or head and neck area. And most common eye problems, I would say, for cancer patients in general would be, as mentioned, dry eyes and cataracts. But the eye is a very complex system. We have nine subspecialties to just to take care of the eyeball. And I must say that ophthalmologists are sort of an enigma to all of medicine, including oncology. So when you present to your oncologist with visual problems, um, it is always best to have your oncology service refer you to an eye care specialist that may be an ophthalmologist who are eye physicians and surgeons or optometrists who are eye care specialists uh, who are not surgeons and can uh, treat other medical things related to the eye. So the vision symptoms typically do not tell us what the clinical problems patients may be experiencing. So I have a motto for all cancer patients, and that is, when in doubt, check it out. It is always good to have these things evaluated by ophthalmologists um, expeditiously because Blurry vision can be something as treatable and simple as dry eyes, but it can also be something more ominous such as intra, in, uh, infection inside the eye due to uh, cancer patients not being able to fight infections. So when in doubt, check it out. So let me go over with you some of the eye problems that um, has been mentioned. So chemotherapy or any type of treatment can cause significant dryness of the eyes, and that can be also true of radiation. So as we know, cancer treatment armamentarian is either chemotherapy or what we call targeted therapy now or immunotherapy or radiation or surgery. And for certain uh, liquid tumor patients, such as leukemia, lymphoma, uh, patients can also have stem cell transplantation. All of these things can cause eye problems and dry eyes for all of these treatment modalities. It's very common. Patients with dry eyes can have myriad of symptoms, including not only blurry vision, the symptoms of dry eyes, and paradoxically, even teary eyes can be as a result of dry eyes. Um, other symptoms may be foreign body sensation, as though you have something in your eye that you can't get out, um, some redness. And so all of these spectrum can be as a result of dryness of your eyes. And dryness can be simply due to the fact that you don't make enough tears, or the tears you make evaporate quicker because your eye surface has some problems holding on to the tears due to the changes on the skin of your eye. And the treatment of dryness, I would say that anyone who's undergoing cancer treatment can be helped by lubricating their eyes. It's like lotion for your eyes. You can buy these over the counter. It doesn't require prescription. And preservative-free types of artificial tears is really the most gentle form. And you can use this without any limitation of frequency. So I would say that preservative-free artificial tears, which come in these ampules, can be very 
very helpful. Two, three times a day, I always tell my patients, if the irritation is significant, it actually helps to put these things in the refrigerator and use it, and it will kind of blunt that irritation. Now, cataracts is not a disease. Anyone over the age of 55 or 60 will have some cataracts, just like wrinkles and gray hair. But cataracts certainly can accelerate its progression with chemotherapy, radiation, um, and that can present with blurry vision. Again, cataracts is something that we can take care of, but cataracts due to radiation is sort of a unique process in that the, the intra uh, the inside the eye can change, and so that takes a little bit more attention if you had cataract above the neck, especially around the eye. But in general, cataracts are, you probably, uh, those of you who are on the call have some people, either your parents or yourself, um, have been told that you have cataracts because it's just like wrinkles and gray hair. Uh, and if your vision can be improved by simply changing your glasses, well, certainly that can be the treatment. However, if changing glasses does not improve your vision to an optimal uh, degree, then cataract surgery can be certainly considered. And medication, as Dr. Fleischman mentioned, treatment uh, can cause all these uh, impact on tissue that turn over, such as hair, nail, and, and eye is certainly uh, one of them in terms of eyelashes, and um, it can really irritate patients' eyes and cause problems. And there are not only just chemotherapy, but targeted therapy, the, these newer uh, cancer-treating modalities that have really revolutionized how patients can be treated as outpatients uh, can cause eye problems as well that are unique to these newer treatment modalities. So when you do experience eye problems, and um, it is just a good idea to, uh, number one, start lubricating your eyes, but certainly involve your oncologist to get you to the right people who can help you. Um, so common things, other common things, floaters. Well, floaters is very common. Those of us on the call probably have them right now. And the reason for the floaters is because the eyeball has gel inside of our eyes that tends to collapse onto itself as we become older and wiser. And those things can uh, uh, cause floaters. However, cancer patients can have additional types of floaters due to their low platelets where bleeding can occur or the glasses changes can occur, so now patients can uh, appreciate more of the things that they didn't see before um, that used to be there. And so these floaters can be either normal changes as that have become accelerated, or it can be due to some type of bleeding or inflammation, and more importantly and more dangerously can signify some type of infection inside the eye. So when you have new onset of floaters, it certainly is best to get checked out. If floaters is accompanied by flashing lights or other types of symptoms, certainly you need an immediate dilated examination to make sure that the retina uh, appears to be intact. You can have retinal detachment. Um, that is not necessarily fixable by surgery, but it'll go away on its own if it's just simply swelling of the retina. But if the retina layer actually comes off the back of, of the eyeball, then surgical intervention is necessary. Um, 
the I was asked to also um, comment on sort of practical tips and management. Um, so as we talked about, the lubrication is always going to be helpful. Um, updating glasses will also be helpful. But in terms of follow-up care, depending on the type of treatment patients are on, um, that will really sort of dictate how often you may need to see an eye care specialist. If there is a known eye problem that your treatment can uh, render to your eye, such as radiation to the head and neck area or whole brain, um, that certainly will probably make patients go into the ophthalmologist more frequently. However, if you're on maintenance treatment and uh, your blurred vision can be successfully treated with updating glasses and lubricating your eyes for a dryness, that probably will only require you to go into your eye care specialist once a year. Uh, but in general, active treatment does require active uh, surveillance, especially if you're having evolving eye symptoms. And in general, it's always a good idea to have an annual examination uh, when you're a cancer survivor um, to make sure that there is a long-term quali that can be treated to improve your quality of life. So with that, I'll, I'll stop here and turn it over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kim. That was really excellent and so much really outstanding information for people to use and apply to the vision. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Barbara Murphy. Dr. Murphy is Professor of Medicine, Hematology, Oncology, Director, Head and Neck Oncology, Program Director, Pain and Symptom Management Program, and a medical oncologist, Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center. Um, and Dr. Murphy is going to be addressing um, discussion of taste, swallowing, and smell disruptions, how to cope with taste, swallowing, and smell changes, how healthcare teams may help, and the role of clinical trials. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Murphy. So I'm going to start by talking about taste alterations and smell. Um, we're going to be talking about these together because they are intimately related. When we consider taste, we are really thinking about a combination of sensory input to the brain that combines taste, texture, temperature, and smell. Taste is perceived by the brain when you place food or something else, such as medication, in the mouth. The, while in the mouth, the food dissolves in saliva. That saliva spreads over the lining of the tongue and throat, and it activates what we call taste receptors. Now, taste is comprised of five basic qualities, sweet, bitter, salty, sour, and something called umami. Umami is a taste sensation that's been more recently described, and that's the one that's associated with pleasure or desirable flavor. Impact on umami has the strongest correlation with impact on quality of life. So if you can't taste umami, your food is going to be less desirable to you. There are other tastes, such as fatty taste or spicy taste. Our knowledge about these type of taste qualities is 
markedly less, and but they are being investigated. You've already heard, but I will reiterate, taste is impacted by low saliva levels because saliva allows those food particles to be broken down and then to de uh, delivered to the receptors. Um, other factors can also impact on taste, and, and those include things like oral hygiene. Are you keeping your, your teeth and your mouth clean through routine brushing and flossing? Do you have dental problems, such as a dental abscess? Do you have gum problems, such as periodontal disease? Do you have infections, like fungal infections, which are common in the cancer patient population? It can also be affected by diet, and it can also be affected by the oral products that you use, um, many of which are available over the counter. Um, finally, um, we know that drugs affect taste. And among the drugs that affect taste are chemotherapy agents. Both standard dose and high dose chemotherapy agents, which are used in conjunction with stem cell rescue, have been reported to cause marked either reductions in taste or alterations in taste. So reduction would be a patient who says, I used to be able to taste chocolate, and now it doesn't taste like anything. Alterations in taste would be a patient who says, hey, look, you know, it not only, it's, it's not that it's lost its taste, the taste has become bad. Um, chemotherapy can actually be seen to be secreted in saliva and that can result in the taste changes that I've mentioned. And those taste changes may persist until the drug is cleared from the system. Um, in addition, uh, chemotherapy agents may cause direct damage to taste receptors. The taste changes associated with standard dose chemotherapy tend to be less severe and they tend to be more transient, so they'll go away relatively quickly for most patients. Now, when you compare that to high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell rescue, it is more likely that those taste changes are going to be moderate to severe, and they are more likely to be um, prolonged in duration. Now, in addition to chemotherapy drugs, radiation, which is a second way that we treat our, our cancers, radiation therapy can cause direct damage to radiation sent, uh, receptors when those receptors are within the radiation field. So let's take a tumor where that happens commonly, head and neck cancer patients. In this group of patients, the tumor is arising close to or adjacent to the taste receptors. So when you radiate the tumor, you radiate the taste receptors. So in almost 100% of head and neck cancer patients who have radiation to the mucosa of the mouth and throat, there are going to be changes in taste. With radiation therapy to the head and neck, taste changes typically begin within the first two to three weeks of treatment. And patients will say, you know, I'm beginning to note that my taste is blunted. 
the taste, the loss of taste worsens over time so that by the time patients complete their radiation, many have either total loss of taste or they will say that food tastes bad. A common complaint that we will hear is patients say, my food tastes like cardboard. Now, what's the impact of taste alteration? Well, first of all, when it is very severe, taste alterations can actually cause nausea and vomiting in some patients. They, the, the food, when they put food in their mouth, the taste is so severe, they vomit. Under these circumstances, patients may actually need a feeding tube to get their nutrition, even though they can swallow just fine. The second um, uh, um, recovery of uh, uh, subsequent uh, um, recovery of taste after radiation is variable in the head and neck patient population, but in general, it's quite prolonged. Most patients will say that they get some taste recovery within two to six months. However, taste alterations may continue indefinitely in some patients. And in a, in a small minority of patients, those taste alterations will be severe, long-term, and impact what patients actually take in from the standpoint of calories. The third and final t treatment type that can affect taste is surgery. We really have very little data about post-surgical taste changes. We do know, however, that um, nerve damage or the drugs administered during surgery as part of the anesthesia can alter taste. In general, however, those taste changes are mild to moderate and they subside over time. Let's talk a little bit more about the um, impact of altered taste in patients regardless of cause, whether it's due to chemotherapy drugs, radiation drugs, or, or radiation therapy, or surgery. Altered taste can, can um, impact on, number one, the number of calories that patients take in, number two, the types of foods that patients take in, so you may have a marked change in the type of foods that you can eat, and this can lead to weight loss and nutritional compromise. Just as importantly, taste alterations can impact social interactions, and by impacting social interactions, you know, we have a very um, food-oriented society. Everybody sits down to have a meal together, and if you feel that you can't do that, that may impact on your quality of life. To date, there are no treatments that have been demonstrated to be effective improving taste. Um, preliminary data indicated that the use of zinc might help patients who have taste alterations, but in a very large randomized phase three trial, which is the definitive type of study, there was no benefit. Um, generally, we recommend dietary counseling with modification of food, meaning seasoning food, avoiding unpleasant foods, or food rotation. Also, if there's local infection, treat it. If patients have low saliva production, treat if possible. Now, moving on to smell. Smell receptors are located in the lining of the nasal passages. They signal directly to the brain. Now, we know that smell generally declines as we age, but treatment with chemotherapy can cause abrupt and significant alterations in smell. 
in a large study of 500 patients, half of uh, who received chemotherapy, half of those patients, half of the people who received chemotherapy had a change in smell. That's huge. In a study of head and neck cancer patients who received chemoradiation, a similar number complained of altered smell. And in one-third of those patients, the change in smell was moderate to severe. The change in smell in the head and neck patient population altered food choices in 40% of patients. And there was a dramatic change in food choices based on alterations in smell in 20%. Similar to taste alterations, um, alterations in smell can cause nausea, altered food intake, and social avoidance. And there's really nothing that we can do to treat that. All right, let's move on to talking about swallowing. This is a particularly important problem in patients with head and neck cancer. Patients treated for head and neck cancer frequently develop difficulty swallowing as a result of cancer, so the cancer can invade the structures necessary to swallow, and those are structures in the mouth and throat, or treatment can cause problems with swallowing and that is treatment with either surgery or radiation. Surgery affects swallowing by removing structures that are integral to the swallowing function. Radiation alters swallowing by causing scar tissue formation in the structures that are important for swallowing. Radiation um, can cause swallow function problems long after radiation is completed. So the patients sometimes will say, hey, look, I got through my radiation therapy and my swallow was okay, but my swallow function didn't deteriorate until after the radiation completed. This is due to the fibrosis. In the head and neck patient population, a high percentage of patients treated either with surgery or radiation will need temporary or permanent placement of a feeding tube in order to get adequate nutrition and adequate hydration. Now, the risk for needing a feeding tube, either temporary or permanent, is dependent on the patient's particular situation, where the tumor is located, how big the, the tumor is, and what the treatment is. So if you want to know what your risk is for a feeding tube, that is something that you should talk with your physician about because they'll be able to give you individualized information. It is very important that all patients who are undergoing head and neck uh, cancer therapy who are at risk for swallow problems be seen by a swallow therapist as early as possible in their treatment course because the swallow therapist can assess swallowing, how safe it is for patients to swallow, and give uh, patients exercises that allow them to keep their swallow function as, um, for as long as possible and help regain function that is lost. The important thing to recognize is if swallow is impaired, what can happen is that um, food can go down the wrong tube. When we swallow, food has to go down the esophagus. If we swallow incorrectly, the food goes down the trachea into the lungs, causing pneumonia. So if you ever have the sensation of coughing after eating or the sensation of food going down the wrong tube, 
it is absolutely critical that you contact your uh, healthcare team, let them know so that they can make sure that you see the swallow therapist and make sure your swallow is safe. It's also important to know that sensation is critical for swallow function. When patients lose sensation, they lose the ability to sense where the food bolus is and are more likely to have problems swallowing food down the wrong tube, that is, swallowing it down the airway. Now, let me uh, conclude by just a statement about clinical trials. Clinical trials are studies that are directed at answering a question about a healthcare problem that affects our patients. And that can, be a study, that can be a study looking at a treatment, like a drug or radiation, but it can also be a study looking at problems such as swallowing taste changes or um, uh, problems with um, uh, altered smell. It is important that if you are asked to participate in a trial, that you consider that wholeheartedly because we have gotten to where we are knowing how to treat patients by the past patients who participated in studies. And the only way that we will be able to learn and progress in the future is for patients to continue to be willing to participate in these trials um, volunteering their time, volunteering their effort, and working with their clinicians to advance the science, not just for themselves, but for all of the patients who come in the future. So I'm going to end there. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Murphy. That was excellent and uh, very good information for everybody to have and, um, and lots of excellent tips and a call out to clinical trials. We appreciate that. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden. Ms. Burden is a supervisor of clinical nutrition at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. She is a dietitian by training, and she's going to discuss the role of a dietitian in assisting with eating changes and concerns and food and hydration recommendations to manage dry mouth and changes in taste, swallowing, and smell. Now, it's my pleasure to turn this program over to Ms. Burden. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this educational opportunity. Um, many treatments for cancer um, may impact your diet tolerance, as we've heard today thus far. These side effects may be temporary or have lasting effects, that was, like was mentioned earlier. Treatments can also increase your need for nutrition and may require diet modifications. So um, if you're challenged um, with any side effects related to your treatment, definitely connect with your team. Let them know. Communicate. Because oftentimes nutritional needs might be elevated during a treatment or a healing process. And eating well during your treatment can impact your tolerance to treatment. Um, it can improve the rate of recovery, reduce treatment delays, and assist with reducing fatigue. A dietitian is here and there to serve you by providing you ideas um, on how to modify your diet, um, maybe food selections that you don't commonly um, include in your diet that might be better tolerated if you have a taste change or if you're having a sensitivity, but we're going to go through that here in just a minute. So today I'll be focusing on addressing food and hydration recommendations to manage dry mouth, changes in taste, smell, and swallowing. Now, mind you, each person's individual, so um, if you are having these challenges, definitely talk with your team about the appropriate um, intervention. But to start with, adequate fluid intake is 
critical during your treatment. It's, it's critical all the time, but when we're um, undergoing treatment, oftentimes um, we're already experiencing side effects and dehydration can um, bring its own set to the table such as constipation, increased nausea, dry mouth, fatigue, dizziness. Fluid is anything liquid at room temperature. It doesn't just have to be water. And at times, there may be a need to bring in fluids that provide electrolytes. So um, your team will be communicating side effects of certain medications and treatments, and you need to communicate what you're experiencing so they can help guide you. Um, for ease, I, I encourage patients oftentimes um, to mark on a bottle or a, a disposable container or something um, in a notepad how much they're drinking a day. Oftentimes you're sleepy, you're, um, you just don't fill up to it, you may not remember um, because maybe you're not sleeping well, maybe medications are interfering with your thought process. So being mindful of how much you're drinking throughout the day, uh, find a way that works best for you to keep track of that. Some side effects, though, like I mentioned, um, don't only come from dehydration, but like we've heard earlier, can come from medications and the treatment itself. So dry mouth is a common side effect um, in cancer treatment. Um, the medical term your doctor might use is xerostomia. Um, dry mouth happens when there's not enough saliva in your mouth. And saliva helps you chew, taste, and swallow food. It's also needed to talk. So we heard earlier about the possibility of um, maybe artificial saliva, something. There's a lot of different products on the market. Um, I get feedback from patients. Um, it, it varies. It's really you have to see what works best for you. But some of the symptoms that may be experienced with dry mouth is you're feeling more thirsty than usual. Maybe you're having a burning sensation. Um, maybe there are some small tears or cuts in the lining of your mouth. And you might even notice you have trouble wearing dentures. And so um, don't force it. Reach out to your team, and um, we can help you modify the texture, um, even the, talk about how to modify recipes if that's necessary to, um, to control the spiciness and um, even you know, think about it, but the crunch. Um, other things that can cause dry mouth, chemotherapy, pain medications, um, diuretics, you don't think about this, but on a day-to-day -day basis, you're probably supplying enough fluid, but then with the treatment, um, it might be taking it to the next level. Some suggestions when you have a dry mouth, um, choose soft, moist foods that are easy to swallow, examples such as oatmeal, mashed potatoes, noodle casseroles, um, if there are any sores in your mouth, um, avoid rough, textured, acidic, and spicy foods that may irritate it. Things that also might be helpful um, is choosing canned or fresh fruits with a lot of moisture in them. You know, we just want to keep it very um, soft and tender so that you're not irritating your mouth. Um, but you have to find the ones that aren't too crunchy. Um, those could be uncomfortable. In a normal situation, you wouldn't notice it, but when your mouth is tender, um, you might. If you're having mouth sores or cuts in your mouth, um, avoid fruits and juices that are high in acid. Avoid spicy or very salted foods. Um, these include things like oranges, grapefruits, lemon, lime, kind of can get hidden in the mist, uh, mix of things, um, even pepper, um, 
salt, adding salt to your food, just be mindful. Adding gravies or sauces might be helpful with a dry mouth, um, such as soups, broth, maybe even pureeing your food, adding some fluid to it to help it um, up the tolerance a bit more. And, um, you know, breads and pastas and things can be challenging, but if you can um, dip them in your food or let them become moistened, then, um, then they won't be as rough on the in, in, in the lining of your mouth. Um, liquids such as milk or broth can be added to your foods if you're trying to make it a little bit more um, tolerable. Those are some things that do well without removing a lot of the flavor. If you add a lot of water, it becomes, um, you know, less intense the flavor, and oftentimes you're, you're wanting that flavor. Um, be mindful of your utensils. Um, drinking with a straw can, can actually um, – can, can cause irritation if your mouth is really sensitive. You don't think about how it could hit your gums and the, and the cheeks inside of your mouth. Um, also, watch when you're eating with forks. Spoons would be more gentle. Um, you can even do plastic if that's um, not as harsh or uncomfortable. Um, and just being mindful um, of that when you are you know, eating quickly because that's when oftentimes things happen. Sometimes, not all the times, but sucking on hard candies, um, if you're able to do that, can help your mouth stay moist. But the general recommendation for fluid intake is between 8 and 12 cups. One cup is 8 ounces of fluid per day. And um, limit the amount of caffeinated drinks um, that you drink. Just even though it takes a lot to, to really be impactful, but if you're already teetering, um, just removing that from your, from your plan can, can just help. Also, maintain good oral hygiene. Um, rinse your mouth frequently. Um, a suggested combination um, or solution is a half a teaspoon of baking soda in one cup of water. That helps keep it clean. Don't use any alcohol mouthwashes. Um, also, brush your teeth very gently with a soft bristled brush or even an oral sponge. Um, people, you know, they're, they're eating and then their mouth becomes tender. They don't want to mess with it, but you don't want to result, it have a dental decay result. Um, so being mindful of keeping your mouth hygiene. So moving along um, with changes in taste and smell. Again, drinking plenty of fluid. We know hydration is very important. Um, but if water becomes, and I hear this a lot from patients, water doesn't taste good. They just can't do water. Even if it's bottled water, it has a bad flavor. Try using um, more natural or um, whole foods to season or flavor your water, such as an orange or apples or mint or something like that, um, oftentimes the sugar-free of those powder drinks have a really bad aftertaste, and sometimes they're too astringent in your mouth, so just take it very um, slowly with that. Again, um, you know, of course, practicing good health, um, good mouth care is very important, um, but with changes in taste and smell, like we heard earlier, there's not a lot you can do to rectify it, but there are some things you can do to help you at least get some pleasure. Now, it depends on your symptoms, but what we do know is that oftentimes fruit is um, well-tolerated. And it's something about fruit itself, um, for some reason, doesn't seem to be affected as much when there's a taste change. So I hear from patients often, nothing else tastes the same but orange 
oranges taste the same or grapes taste like they're supposed to. Oftentimes even doing it in a sorbet or trying to incorporate that in a drink might be something to consider if you can tolerate it. Um, we've talked before about even switching over to plastic utensils if you're having an issue with um, the flavor of metallic in your mouth. Um, cleaning your mouth in between eating. Um, eating sessions, so right before you eat, go ahead and cleanse your mouth with the baking soda water um, rinse, and that'll help hopefully reset some of the, the flavor if you have a bad taste in your mouth. You can always try marinating your foods. Again, like we talked, or I just mentioned it a minute ago, our fruits and sometimes um, the acidic flavor, if you're able to tolerate it, is well recognized. And so if I have a patient where that's working for them, I say, you know what, put marmalade on it. Um, you know, if there's a sauce that you like to marinate your food in, just, and, and then you don't taste the chicken that tastes weird, but rather you taste the um, component that is comfortable for you. Um, if you are having trouble with foods tasting salty or bitter, you can try increasing your sweet by adding honey, agave, maple syrup, or jam to foods, and that, that sometimes if you're having one, the other is better tolerated, and vice versa. If foods are tasting too sweet, try um, increasing the salty or the tart flavors. Um, sometimes that can be helpful. Again, reaching out of your, your comfort zone, trying foods that you may not typically try might be something that um, will be better tolerated. If you're having an issue with smell, cold food has less odor than warm food does. And so um, even somebody cooking in the other room can turn a patient off quite quickly, um, the smells and all of that. So cold food, you could do like chicken salad, um, tuna salad, of course your um, yogurts and things like that. But again, working with your healthcare team is the best way to determine what works best for you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and conclude right now, and I'm going to hand this back over to Carolyn. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Jordan. That was really excellent. And I know all of our mouths are watering such wonderful suggestions for people and tips, which are very helpful. And so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Caroline Edlin. Ms. Edlin is an oncology social worker, and she is our online support group program director for Cancer Care. And Ms. Edlin is going to present the psychosocial services of Cancer Care and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Edlin. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be part of that network. There are many ways that we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online groups. 
These groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a cancer care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this means for you and for your family. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions you may want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are here to help. So please do contact us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Uh, thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Edlin, for the excellent presentation. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Candace to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And please do ask your questions. We have quite the multidisciplinary team today to really address your questions. So, um, Candace. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now yes, open. Thank you so much, Caroline. This is an excellent seminar again. Uh, my question, I have two questions. I, I had had uh, azomycin and cytoxin nine and a half years ago, and I'd like to know, and also steroids, if that caused my cataracts and dry eyes from that, and can you get a secondary and third cataract from the chemotherapy and the steroids? That's for Dr. Fleischman. And the second question is, is do you have studies on alpha-lipoic acid, which I've been taking, and B6 for um, peripheral neuropathy, and also laser therapy that I had started for the peripheral neuropathy? I'd like to know if there's studies on that too, cold laser. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Stephanie, and thanks for your remarks. And I'm going to ask Dr. Kim, I think, to address your first question about um, the steroids and dry eyes. Um, is that correct, Dr. Kim? Can you address that question? Sure. In a so general way, of course. And then, of course, and, yes. of course um, as we mentioned, it can be very common, and, and steroid can accelerate the progression of cataracts. And the cataract surgery can be performed successfully, but when you have concomitant dry eyes, Regardless of how you got the dry eyes, whether it's due to age, hormonal change, chemotherapy, or radiation, cataract surgery will, will make your dry eyes worse, either temporarily or even permanently. So someone who uh, is very well aware of your ocular condition should be the one to perform your cataract surgery. Secondary cataract is... It's called secondary cataract, but it actually isn't a cataract. What happens is the bag, the clear bag that is in your eye that holds the natural lens is left behind in order for the implant to be held within that bag, and that is clear to start. However, with time, irrespective of whether you were treated with chemotherapy or any other treatment, that bag, what we call capsule, can become hazy, causing similar symptoms as though you have uh, developed another cataract. So haziness, um, blurry vision, uh, difficulty with glare, but 
for those what we call capsular opacity, uh, surgery such as cataract surgery is not necessary. You can get a treatment with laser treatment, and that can take care of the problem quite nicely. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Fleischman, can you address the first question about um, cephalonopathy and I think it was B6? Well, um, this is a In a general hard, way. Sure. Uh, this is a hard thing to answer because there are a number of studies that look at um, some vitamins like B6 or B1 or alpha-lipoic acid or some amino acids uh, in peripheral neuropathy. Some have been used uh, to look at prevention, and some have been used to look at treatment. Um, but I, I don't know of any one definitive thing that can be done for peripheral neuropathy as far as proven by a placebo-controlled double-blind study. Um, we do hear from patients and families quite a bit that there are a number of things they've tried. Some work, some don't. Um, even heard of carnitine working, certainly. We've heard of acupuncture working but I'm not certain that there's real scientific evidence. The good thing is that many of these supplements, if used properly, are not toxic. So uh, with, your, uh, you know, with your treatment team and possibly with a referral and evaluation by a neurologist who really is an expert in peripheral neuropathy, you may be able to get an answer that is helpful to you as an individual. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, so I've noticed my vision becoming more cloudy. This would be for Dr. Kim. My physician said this may be a result of my chemotherapy treatment. Since my job requires me to drive long distances, is this something that can be stopped or treated with medication? So this is a very general question for Dr. Kim, um, and um, I wondered if you could just address it in a general way. And then, of course, we would recommend that our caller go back to the treating healthcare team. But... Um, just in terms of sure. Uh, if, if you are experiencing a general decline in the vision while you are getting treatment, then that is something that needs to be evaluated by an ophthalmologist to determine just why you are having the problem that you're having. Very commonly, patients are going to have dry eyes and progression of cataract as the two main and most common ways patients experience blur vision, especially during their treatment, especially if steroid is involved with their chemotherapy. Now, some of the newer medications that are uh, specific for specific types of cancer have some very unique and atypical ocular side effects, which are currently being elucidated, and it is not common. That is not the first thing one should think about, but certainly it is something that should be evaluated. Vision during driving can be quite bothersome if you have worse cataract, especially at nighttime. But same as uh, dryness, you can have profound decline in your vision uh, especially when you're driving, because anytime we concentrate, whether we are staring at the computer, reading, driving, we automatically blink about 50% less. That's our reflex. And as a result, our eyes tend to dry out anytime we're doing anything that requires our attention. So before you start driving, try using lubricating drops to see if that helps you with the boot blurriness. Um, go to your ophthalmologist, see if it is cataract progression that is changing your glasses needs and see if that helps your nighttime driving. But certainly, you know, as I said before, when in doubt, check it out. It's the best course of action. 
Excellent, and thank you so much. That's really such an important tip. I don't think I don't know if many people realize that, and and of course also let your oncologist know as well what's going on. Um, and um, this is excellent. And another question we have, which is actually uh, for Dr. Fleischman, and I think also for Ms. Edwin as well. So let me I'll have Dr. Fleischman start, but. This is a question. My husband, from a caregiver, my husband has trouble with mobility, balance, and refuses to use a cane. I try not to let him go too far without me nearby, but still worry about him getting hurt. What can I do to convince him to use a cane or walker? So this is a complicated question. I'm going to ask Dr. Fleischman to address it in a general way, as well as Ms. Edwin, but we're hoping that some of the tips they give you might be useful to you in trying to come to grips with this. And I suspect that there are many people on the call who are caregivers and are in a predicament around either around the, the a cane issue or eating issues or so many other issues that are really affect the caregivers. So, Dr. Fleischman, could you address this to begin with? <laughs> sure. This is a tough situation. I've been through it a number of times before, both professionally and with family members. Um, using a cane that means that sometimes people look at you in a way where you're dependent and when you're not yourself, and often many of us don't like to be seen that way by our friends, our relatives, and even by strangers. Um, what I've seen be effective, which is far the worst way to go about this, is that someone actually has a fall and hurts themselves, and then they heal and they realize that um, they really do need the cane. Uh, but that's not the way to do it. Absolutely not a good idea from what I have seen. I, I think uh, just appealing to someone's um, good sense and trying to uh, appeal to the fact that they can actually be more mobile, more independent, um, and have much more of, involve much more of their regular activities if they rely on an assistive device sometimes helps. Um, I often think about, uh, especially this week, with uh, seeing the, the replays of uh, President Roosevelt uh, speaking to the country about, uh, about the start of World War II and invasion of Pearl Harbor, is um, having, seeing his son help him down from the podium as he was using a cane because he wanted to show a strength to the world and did not want to seem uh, disabled in any way. Sometimes it requires that kind of uh, hands-on transition to the point where somebody can uh, use an assistive device on their own. Thank you, Dr. Fleischman. And uh, Ms. Edwin, do you want to comment on that in terms of the caregiver programs, support for people um, in, in, in that situation and, and so many others? that. Um, Absolutely. Um, so, so just to add to what Dr. Fleischman said, you know, so many of our caregivers find themselves in, in these circumstances when there's a difference of opinion on perhaps next steps and concerns about a loved one um, not perhaps caring for themselves in, in the ways that we would like and hope. And I think it can be very helpful to have a space to process some of that. And that can be a support group um, where you have the opportunity to connect with other caregivers who are often navigating some of these same uh, complicated questions and figuring out ways to um, have these difficult discussions with, with loved ones. Uh, and at Cancer Care, we do offer support groups uh, in person for people within commuting distances of our offices in New York City, uh, but also by telephone and online. So there are ways to, um, to connect 
with other people to, to get their guidance, to get their feedback. Uh, and and addition, in addition, we also offer individual counseling with, with social workers, either in person or by phone, just to have a sounding board as you're figuring out next steps. Um, as Dr. Fleischman said, this uh, particular question is very layered because of how um, you know, switching to or having mobility issues, switching to a cane can bring up a lot of um, a lot of concerns for people and how others perceive them. And so um, perhaps the first step would be, you know, just finding out a little bit more about what the hesitations are and, and sharing concerns on both sides. But again, um, I think if you're looking for additional um, space to kind of process those ideas before you go to your loved one, um, some of cancer care services can be a wonderful outlet as well. Oh, thank you so much. And our next, we have a telephone question, so our next telephone question as well. And our next question comes from Karen Kay. Your line is now open. Yes, hello. I was just wondering uh, regarding the tips the nutritionist uh, was talking about, is are there good websites I could refer people to? I'm a social worker uh, for folks who don't have the ability to meet with a nutritionist um, looking for resources. Thank you. Well, thank you. That's a great question, Karen. And um, Ms. Baird, are you able to provide a website or some? Uh, uh, you know, yeah, I was going to say some of the um, primary cancers that struggle with this the most are the head and neck or even the thoracic. And so I would suggest reaching out to maybe a support group website from one of those um, primaries. There's um, a book that we used to use quite a bit um, called Dinner Through a Straw. So if they're looking for recipe ideas, that might be something to um, engage with them. I'm not sure if your facility has a, um, a learning center um, that may provide some resources. Um, we have a learning center here, and it's um, a, a lot of different materials that um, the providers have suggested that might be helpful for a number of different patients. So those might be some things they could connect with. Thank you. And Diana, if you can send some of those resources to us or just the links to them. And sure. also, I just want to mention that we do, the National Cancer Institute has a wonderful booklet called Eating Hints, and the American Cancer Society also has some general booklets and materials on, um, on Eating Hints as well. So those are two huge organizations. They are um, actually um, listed in all materials, but when we send you our follow-up uh, materials after the call today, you'll be getting those resources again. Um, for and then and then the resources that um, Ms. Bearden provides as well. Dr. Now, I think additional, yes. Additional, oh yes. Uh, oh please. Oh thank you. There's a foundation called Cook for Your Life, which is oh, a yes. specific foundation that deals with um, healthy cooking for patients uh, either who are in the middle of cancer treatment or in survivorship. Um, the things that are there are healthy, beautiful. Um, well done, uh, very, very attractive. It's not at all what we would think of as anything like sort of hospital food. Uh, so that's Cook for Your Life. I believe it's www.cfyl.org. Very helpful. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. That is a, a superb resource, and we will be sure to get that resource to all of you as well um, as, a, as a wonderful resource to have. Um, because that is it's a great organization. And Cook for Your Life, actually, um, if you Google it, you'll get it, but we will give you the exact website, and um, they are a terrific resource. So we may send you other resources in addition, but you've got a, at least some to start with. 
Um, so um, I just want to thank our speakers. This has been an extraordinary call. Actually, when I think about this, um, we've tried to cover all the different, some of the um, changes that you might be experiencing related to your cancer treatments. Not all. We could probably have a part two to this program. But I want to thank all of you who found the call today. Um, and I want to thank our speakers in particular. You've been extraordinary. I also want to thank you who have queued up for questions and asked questions, and also those of you who have been listening. I do want to remind all of you this is a one-hour program, and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. And so with that in mind, um, I do like to remind you of all the services that you can access from Cancer Care, um, and, also, um, and also services you can access. You may have questions that you didn't get to ask. So I always am concerned about those of you who are sitting here and thinking, I have this other question that I didn't get to ask. So if any of you have a medical question or a question related to your treatment, of course, we want you to talk to your healthcare team, but I would also suggest that you would contact um, the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 or their website, www.cancer.gov. They also have a live chat feature as well so that if you have questions, they will connect you to their information specialists, and it's a wonderful resource. Um, for each of you. In addition to that, if you would like to talk with someone about your emotional or social or practical or financial concerns in coping with cancer, I would suggest that you call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. Again, 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. I also want to um, remind everyone, I, I think you're all probably aware of this, that we are approaching a sort of holiday season um, to some extent um, and, you know, for many different holidays that are occurring during this time of year, in this month of December and into January as well. Um, and I think that that poses particular challenges both for people living with cancer as well as their caregivers. So to be um, attuned to the fact that we have many resources and services for you here um, to cope with some of those things or the questions that you may have. So never hesitate to call us. We're here to help you. And, I, and most importantly, as we conclude, we don't want anyone to feel that you're alone in coping with cancer and coping with some of the questions that we, we talked about today, some of the changes that you may be experiencing. You have a resource to call, um, and we are simply at your back and call. We're simply a telephone call away or a, a web click away on your, a web, on your um, computer. So again, thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation in today's conference. This does conclude the workshop, and you may all disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.